0: This is Jeanne Poole. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Heart Rhythm O2 Journal. Today, I will be summarizing the October 2020 issue. Our lead-off paper is by Dr. Sprague and colleagues from multiple institutions. The title of this paper is The Unregulated Online Sales of Cardiac Implantable Electronic Devices in the United States, a Six-Month Assessment. The purpose of this study was to investigate whether or not unregulated sales of CIEDs was occurring in the United States. To do this, the authors conducted a prospective observational study over six months by searching Internet search engines, including Google, Firefox, Bing, and Internet Explorer, looking for devices listed as for sale. They categorized them as usable if still in the original packaging or unregulated if listed as for sale by a seller not employed or approved as a contracted distributor by any manufacturer. The authors found that over six months, 58 CIEDs were identified as for sale and included 47 ICDs and 11 permanent pacemakers. These appeared on three websites, which were eBay, MedWile, and .med. These devices had been listed by their manufacturer as lost, stolen, or sold to a healthcare system. Overall, unregulated sales were relatively uncommon, although this just represents surveillance over six months. More active monitoring by device companies would be expected to decrease further such unregulated device sales. A live interview of the author accompanies this article. Our next paper is titled, Risk of COVID-19 Infection After Cardiac Electrophysiology Procedures by Dr. Workman and colleagues at Yale University. These authors examined the occurrence of COVID-19 infection in patients who had an EP procedure between March 15th and May 15th, the height of the COVID-19 infections at Yale University. The authors looked at the time frame following the first two weeks from the EP procedure. Of 124 patients who had a procedure, none had typical COVID symptoms or tested positive for COVID-19 infection. Two patients died, one of heart failure and another two months later while in a long-term facility, and seven additional patients had some symptoms that were not consistent with a presentation of COVID-19 infection and three of those did have testing which was negative for COVID-19 infection. Therefore, no cases were diagnosed as COVID or had COVID-like symptoms. During this time, the practice was maximal PPE protection and COVID-19 testing for all patients who would be undergoing a procedure, and any patient who had not been tested within three days was excluded from this analysis. The authors therefore conclude that with proper preventive measures, the risk of nosocomial spread of COVID-19 in the EP lab is low. In the next article, Dr. Zeitler and colleagues examine the question of why women derive more benefit from CRT compared to men. The name of the article is Sex Differences in Left Ventricular Electrical Dysynchrony and Outcomes with Cardiac Resynchronization Therapy. Using data from Duke University Hospital, the QRS duration and QRS area are measured from the pre-CRT implant ECGs in 492 patients included in this study, of whom 35% were women. The outcome measures were risk of cardiac transplant, left ventricular assist device, or death. The authors found that the mean QRS duration did not differ by sex, but QRS area was significantly greater in women. When the pre-CRT implant ECGs were looked at for whether or not the left bundle branch block met strict criteria, it was found that the QRS area was similar among men and women who met the strict left bundle branch block criteria. Whereas, amongst the group with a non-strict left bundle branch block ECG, the QRS area was found to be greater in the women compared to the men. Female sex was associated with better long term outcomes in an unadjusted model, but sex no longer predicted outcomes after accounting for differences in the QRS area. The authors conclude that QRS area is a better predictor of left ventricular dyssynchrony, especially in women, and a better predictor of outcomes. The next paper is titled Safety and Efficacy of Cardiovascular and Implantable Electronic Device Extraction in Elderly Patients, A Meta-Analysis and Systematic Review by Dr. Lin and colleagues from the University of California, San Diego. The authors performed a literature search for trials that reported lead extraction outcomes according to age, specifically octogenarians or younger patients. Outcome measures included the rate of complete procedural success, the rate of clinical success, procedural mortality, and major and minor complications. Seven studies with 4,182 patients were included in the analysis of whom approximately 19% were 80 years of age or older. The authors found that the complete procedural success rate was not significantly different between octogenarians and those extracted of a lower age. Similarly, the clinical success rate was not significantly different. Importantly, no difference in procedural mortality, major or minor complication rates were observed. The authors conclude that this study supports safe lead extraction in elderly patients. Up next is a paper titled, Interatrial Distance Predicts the Necessity of Additional Carina Ablation to Isolate the Right-Sided Pulmonary Veins, authored by Dr. Hanaki and colleagues from Japan. The purpose of this study was to clarify anatomical characteristics predictive of the need for additional carina ablation during AF ablation of the right pulmonary veins. Forty-five consecutive patients referred for AF ablation were included. Standard CT imaging was performed for left atrial and pulmonary vein size and morphology. Radiofrequency PVI ablation was performed according to the operator's usual approaches. The patients were subsequently separated into two groups dependent upon whether or not additional right pulmonary vein carina ablation had been performed. There were 21 patients who had additional carina ablation and 24 patients who did not. The CT scans were reviewed by an investigator blinded to the procedural approaches and outcomes. A number of specific measurements were made and included left atrial and right atrial volumes, the number of pulmonary veins, the minor and major axis diameters of each pulmonary vein ostium, The circumference at the pulmonary vein ostea, the cross-sectional area, a measurement of the pulmonary vein osteomorphology, a measurement of the right inferior pulmonary vein angle, and the interatrial distance in the posterior aspect. The latter measurement had a very specific protocolized group of measurements performed. The authors found that the distance between the anterior portion of the right pulmonary vein carina and right atrium was shorter in the patients who underwent an additional carina ablation than those that had not. The other anatomical parameters were not different between the two groups. The authors also note that the diameter and circumference of the left superior pulmonary vein was shorter in those that underwent carina ablation. The authors posit that an epicardial connection between the right of pulmonary venous carina and right atrium may be one of the mechanisms for which carinal ablation is required for pulmonary vein isolation. Dr. Katsumi and colleagues from Japan have the next paper entitled Assessing the Perforation Site of Cardiac Tempanade During Radiofrequency Catheter Ablation Using Gas Analysis of Pericardial Effusion. In this study, the authors reviewed 1,363 consecutive patients who underwent catheter ablation for any reason, which can include PVI for atrial fibrillation, other SVTs, or ventricular tachycardia at Kioran University Hospital in Japan. The authors surveyed the charts of these patients to look for the occurrence of a pericardial effusion occurring during the procedure. The authors identified if blood gas analysis of the pericardial effusion had been obtained and whether it was of venous or arterial origin. If peripheral blood had been collected, they then compared the blood gas results to the pericardial effusion. Blood gas results. AF ablation represented the majority of the cases, or 72%. 17% were for ventricular tachycardia, or PVCs, and the remaining 11% were for other SVTs. Of the total patients, 18 of these had a pericardial fusion, or 1.32 percent. All of them were detected in the EP lab, 17 of which required drainage and two required surgical repair. Of the 17 with pericardial synthesis, 47 percent were venous in origin, which for AF ablation represented 57 percent of those cases. Detection of the pericardial effusion was not directly timed with catheter manipulations. However, 11% occurred after a cardioversion, 11% were observed during program stimulation, and 28% were recognized after the procedure was done and hemostasis was being obtained. The interesting observations from this study are that over 50% of the pericardial effusions which occurred with atrial fibrillation ablation were venous in origin and that at least some of these seem to time with other events such as cardioversion, which might suggest that the catheter moved, leading to perforation and then pericardial effusion. The next paper is entitled Preventive versus Deferred Catheter Ablation of Myocardial Infarct-Associated Ventricular Tachycardia A Meta-Analysis. The authors are Dr. Kampaktis and colleagues. This study evaluated the impact of delayed ablation of VT relative to ICD implantation timing in ICD-indicated patients. The authors include four randomized clinical trials with a total of 505 patients. The four studies were SMASH-VT, a US trial, VTAC, a European trial, SMS, or Substrate Modification Study, also from Europe, and Berlin-VT, from Europe. There were differences amongst the studies. Only SMASH-VT included primary prevention indicated patients. The other studies were limited only to secondary indication. 246 patients were in the preventive ablation plus ICD arm and 259 in the ICD first and ablate only if recurrent VT arm. The analysis demonstrated a 47% reduction in any ICD therapies, ATP or shocks in the preventive ablation strategy group. Appropriate ICD shocks only were reduced by 53% and VTVF storm by 40%. No significant difference was observed for all-cause mortality or reported complication rates. The findings of this meta-analysis show that appropriate ICD therapies can be significantly reduced with an early ablation strategy without increasing complications. This next study is titled, Decline in Physical Activity in the Weeks Preceding Sustained Ventricular Arrhythmia in Women, written by Dr. Birch and colleagues. The purpose of this study was to determine the relationship between physical activity, as measured by an accelerometer, in women prescribed a wearable cardioverter defibrillator and subsequent defibrillator shocks. The data were derived from a commercial database. 4,808 women were identified who did not experience a shock and 120 women who did receive a shock for VT or VF. Overall, women who never experienced a shock, who had a history of dilated cardiomyopathy or who were post myocardial infarction have a 17% and 26% increase in activity respectively in the first week. The authors find that activity continued to increase over the average wear time of 87 days. In contrast, amongst the 120 women who experienced a WCD-appropriate shock, activity began to decline around day 16 and continued to decline up to the time of the WCD shock. The findings of this study suggest an opportunity to identify patients at risk for a ventricular arrhythmia as the exercise decline may indicate a change in their clinical status. An editorial accompanies this article. The final original paper is titled Bipolar Ablation's Unique Paradigm, Duration and Power as Respectively Distinct Primary Determinants of Transmorality and Steam Pop Formation. Here Dr. Birch and colleagues explore in an ex vivo animal model the contributions to lesion formation with radiofrequency energy delivery. Lesions were created varying the force, the power, and the time. The dimensions of the lesions were measured and whether or not steam pops occurred. Perpendicular or parallel positions of the active and indifferent catheters were also tested. Ninety-six total ablation lesions were created, with seventy-two lesions using the perpendicular catheter position and twenty-four using a parallel catheter position. The primary findings were that the risk of a steam pop and lesion depth were not affected by the catheter orientation, second, for bipolar ablation, the total lesion depth was only affected by the duration of the ablation and not by the power, force, tissue thickness, or catheter orientation. And third, that the risk of steam pops increased with longer ablation duration and higher power. Steam pops were also more likely to occur in thinner tissue. I also invite you to read the excellent review article by Neil Chatterjee and Thomas Ray on the secondary prevention of sudden cardiac death And also a review article by Ben Sherlock and colleagues titled, Atrial Ventricular Junctional Ablation, The Good, the Bad, and the Better. Thank you for listening to this podcast for the October issue of the Heart Rhythm O2 Journal.